Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. We've got great guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about current events. We'll also visit with Buzz Victor. Buzz is uh, heading up an issue. He's a community activist uh, and a very successful businessman, but he's uh, heading up uh, an issue about Naples One building high rises on Vanderbilt Drive and Vanderbilt Beach Road. Also, visit with uh, Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, will be joining us as well. It is May the 29th, and on this day in 1953, Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and his uh, Sherpa of Nepal became the first explorers to reach the summit of Mount Everest, which is 29,035 feet above sea level. It's the highest point on the Earth. And just think about this. It's about the level at which most airplanes fly right now, commercial air, air flights. The two-part uh, part of a British expedition made their final assault on the summit after spending a fitful night 27,900 feet high. That is the base camp. The summit of Everest reaches two-thirds of the way through the air of the Earth's atmosphere at above cruising altitude of jet airliners and oxygen levels there are very low. Temperatures are extremely cold and weather is unpredictable and dangerous. On the 28th, uh, Tenzing and Hillary sent out setting up the high camp at 27,900 feet, 27,900 feet after a freezing, sleepless night. The pair plodded on, reaching the south summit by 9 a.m. and a steep rocky step, some 40 feet high above an hour later, about an hour later. Uh, wedging himself in a crack in the face, Hillary inched himself up what was then known as Hillary's Step. Hillary threw down a rope and Norgay, his Sherpa, followed uh, along. At about 11.30 a.m., the climbers arrived at the top of the world. The next day, the news broke around the world. Later that year, Hillary and Hunt were knighted uh, by the Queen. Uh, Norgay, by the way, they, they reached the summit at about the same time that the Queen was coronated as uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Norgay became, uh, was not a citizen of Commonwealth Nation, received the Lesser British Empire Medal. Uh, Hillary himself was knighted by the Queen. Since Hillary and Norgay's uh, historic climb, numerous expeditions have made their way up Everest Summit in 1960. The Chinese expedition was the first to conquer the mountain from the Tibetan side. And in 1963, James Whitaker became the first American to top Everest. In 1975, uh, Yunko of Japan became the first woman to reach the summit. Three years later, Reinhold Messner of Italy and Peter Hebeler of Austria achieved what had been previously thought impossible, climbing to Everest, the summit, without oxygen. More than 300 climbers have died attempting to summit, uh, climb the summit. Uh, you may recall the great book, uh, Into Thin Air by Krakauer. I read that book, and what an amazing story it is. The lack of preparation on some people and how some people died. An amazing story. This is all uh, uh, really... Uh, codified what happened in 1996 when eight climbers died being caught in a blizzard high on the slopes uh and you know what what why do you race a challenge like this i think it's it's the experience is it the experience the sense of achievement i suspect it's more of the last reaching the summit of mount everest on this day in 1953 uh, when asked why did you do it hillary replied because it was there interesting the Dow Jones Industrial Average sold off at the end of yesterday's trading to end down 147 points. Another 2.0 million folks filed for unemployment, bringing the total now to 40 million folks on unemployment. Corporate profits dropped in the first quarter by uh, most since 2008 Great Recession. Futures will start today's trading in negative, Toria, down about 100. Uh, seems to be a little less volatility these days, but we'll see what happens. 67 new cases of COVID-19 in Collier County, Thursday pushing the uh, county's total to 1,001. 
Three additional deaths of Collier residents also counted by the state on Thursday. A total of 49 Collier residents have died from COVID-19 complications. Well, I should say not from, but with COVID-19 complications, as we've talked about previously. I suspect some of those are didn't have COVID-19 at all. But nevertheless, 148 people in Collier County have been hospitalized, many, many released, of course. Now, it seems that the hotspot in Collier County is Immokalee. It's a community of about 25,000 folks with 44% living at or below the poverty level, which for a family of four would be about $26,000 a year. As of Thursday, 488 have tested positive for COVID-19. About a third of the cases in Collier County, about one-twelfth of the population. So uh, why? And, and uh, of course, there are uh, Doctors Without Borders there in Immokalee testing folks. And, uh, of course, these migrant workers, uh, they go out to the fields. They're in the packed in buses. And uh, certainly they have the, uh, the environment in order to spread this virus. But they also migrate to North Carolina and Michigan. And I think there's a real concern that perhaps uh, this hotspot in Immokalee might grow and be taken to other parts of the United States as they go to uh, uh, pick crops in, in other parts of the nation, in North Carolina and, and Michigan. So uh, coronavirus is spreading in Immokalee. Well, a Naples couple has given $1 million towards planned downtown Naples Theater. Mary and Stephen Byron Smith bestowed the gift to Gulf Shore Playhouse to support the creation of new Gulf Shore Playhouse Theater and Education Center. Now, you may be aware I served as a board chairman for 15 years at Gulf Shore Playhouse until I relinquished and they got somebody more capable to do the job. But anyhow... Uh, we are extremely grateful not only for this generous gift from the Smiths, but also for their belief in our vision, said Kristen Corey. She's the founding and founder and producing artistic director of Gulf Shore Playhouse. Their visible support underscores the vital role arts play in our society, and it's a huge step forward and a vote of confidence at this time when we all need some good news, said Kristen Corey. Uh, Gulf Shore Playhouse a couple of years ago unveiled renderings of the proposed venue. The plan will include a 350-seat state-of-the-art proscenium theater with sloping seats, uh, stadium-style seating, uh, which will be used for large musicals, classics, and world premieres, comedies, and dramas. Uh, the current theater is at the Norris Center. It's a community center. They painted the seatings black and uh, fitted it uh, for the theater experience as best they could, but it, uh, it's got church chairs and uh, not the sloped seating that we'd like to have. So the Smiths, just, we're just very, very grateful to the Smiths for their, especially at this time, uh, making this generous gift of a million dollars to Gulf Shore Playhouse. I think the total need there is about uh, $58 million, and I think they're more than halfway there right now. Congratulations to Gulf Shore Playhouse, and thanks uh, to the Smiths for their support. President Trump took to tweet early Friday morning to vow military support for the governor of Minnesota after another night of violent protest in Minneapolis, which included a, uh, a fire state or police station being overturned overrun and set on fire. I can't stand back and watch this happen in the great American city of Minneapolis, Trump tweeted. A total lack of leadership, either the very weak radical left mayor Jeff Fr Jacob Frey, get his act together, bring the city to under control, or I'll send the National Guard and get the job done right, he said, he tweeted. A second tweet continued, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let this happen. George Floyd, of course, is the guy that died with a police uh, knee on his neck for eight minutes. He spoke with uh, Governor Tim Waltz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, we'll assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you, said, uh, tweeted President Trump. Mayor Jacob Frey said it was his decision to evacuate the precinct. The symbolism of the uh, building cannot outweigh the importance of life. Our officers or the public, he said, we could not risk serious injury to anyone and will continue to patrol the third precinct, he said. Uh, it was an egregious, appalling, and tragic uh, act, McEnany. Now, this is the press secretary for President Trump. He said well, he wants justice to be served. Uh, he, uh, Trump uh, picked up the phone while on board Air Force One and asked FBI to expedite the, exp uh, the investigation into the incident. So this is just really tragic. It makes me wonder. Uh, I'm, I'm quite certain that many of these protesters are peaceful protesters. They're uh, protesting uh, because of the violent act or the uh, unwarranted act of the policeman. 
that arrested this uh, Floyd George. But irrespective, now you've seen all these violence, and I suspect some of these, I've heard actually, that some of the people that are coming in and looting and burning and creating the violence are, are not even from Minneapolis. And of course, there's other spots across the, across the nation, like uh, New York City, Los Angeles, Denver, Minneapolis, or Memphis, Phoenix, Columbus, Ohio. There's uh, acts of violence there as well. It makes me wonder, perhaps, who's behind this? Just uh, I and I don't want to create any conspiracy theories here, but there it's too orchestrated to just be uh, spontaneous. It seems to me this is orchestrated, perhaps Antifa. I'm not exactly sure who's behind this, but it's a lot of mischief going on, and I suspect uh, it could be uh, w taken on and, and encouraged uh, or fan, fan the flames, anyhow, of uh, of people like Antifa. Well, I wish they'd arrest some of these people and find out exactly what their background is and what's going on. There will be an invest FBI investigation. I'm sure they'll get to the bottom of it. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community, thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees. The goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Golf Show Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It is brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And again, congratulations to them on the $1 million gift from the Smiths, advancing the cause to build a brand-new theater and education center in downtown Naples. Season's coming up, and I hope you'll visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org, golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us William Yateman. William Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with the Cato Institute, could you tell us about it? 
You bet. Uh, we're a public policy think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're committed to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Uh, Very robust website. I hope you'll give it a visit. So, uh, William, a lot of things going on. Before we talk about uh, the uh, uh, Twitter uh, dust up. <laughs> let's uh, t- let's talk a little bit about Washington D.C. That's where you're located right now. Of course, it's there been a, a, a outbreak of coronavirus there. What's going on? Well, I'm pleased to report that there's light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, it, it, June 8th had been the, the we, we had a stay at home order and it, it extended to June 8th just this week. There was some sort of recalibration. I mean, I'm not exactly uh, sure, you know, why this decision. It is hoped, in, uh, in light of the latest, you know, evidence, scientific evidence, they decided accordingly. But whatever the reason, they rolled back the stay-at-home order for a number of businesses, um, phase one of the reopening, to today, which uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, uh, as recently as last week, I was unsure as to whether or not this thing would ever end. Yeah. And uh, whatever its reason, I'm I'm thrilled at the prospect of, of life potentially getting back to normal sooner than later. Uh, that's great. So what does this mean for you and your family in terms of going to phase one or moving to, to the next level, in terms of your activities and what you'll be able to do? Well, it means we can broaden the the scope of diversions with our son in our 850-square-foot co-op in Washington, D.C., no. beyond walks around the block. <laughs> I mean, um, I'd love, as I understand it, now uh, interaction among children, um, you know, to a limited extent. I don't think, you know, children's concerts or something are, are condoned. But yeah. um, in essence, I'm looking forward to getting my son hanging out with other kids again. <laughs> so yeah. That's the big one. Socialization is so important, especially for a young person like that. So, well, that's great. I'm um, Congratulations. I hope this is a sign of good things to come, not only in Washington, D.C., but around the nation. So uh, here, here. the president signed an executive order targeting social media companies for the way they regulate content on their platforms and raises a number of questions, but I know that this is an area of specialty for you. I was wondering if you could comment. Tell us what happened and and, uh, why it's important. You bet. Um, I'll say this. So this is sort of a pox on both their houses take. Um, On the one hand, the Twitters of the world, Twitter did something inexplicable. I mean, it's sort of a a poking at a hornet's nest, if you will. Mm -hmm. They recently started affixing to Trump's tweets um, fact checks mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, well, that, that is, you know, people are smart enough to decide for themselves. And, and I really do question the wisdom of what they did because it, it erodes, it chips away at uh, what is really a key legal protection for these social media um, entities like Twitter and the Facebooks of the world. And, and that, you know, your listeners may have heard of late, this Section 230 of the Communications Act, and mm-hmm. what that does is it shields these these uh, content providers, the internet content providers, these platforms. I'm sorry, that's the legal term um, that allow you know that facilitates social media use. Uh, the upshot is by affixing fact check labels to Trump's tweets, Twitter is acting just like a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in essence begging Trump to do what he did yesterday. Um, and, and this is sort of the yin to the yang. So I, I disagree with what Twitter did. I, mean, I just think that's sort of a silly provocation. But help us to understand, though, that the, the Section 230 basically says that uh, you're protected from uh, legal liability because uh, you're just a platform of uh, information that's being uh, really p- provided by other users and other people, uh, you're not being held accountable and liable for what's being published there. And yet now they're saying uh, they want to have the right to, it's like uh, they want to have it both ways. They want to be able to say uh, against what uh, I think Section 230 provides for, they want to be able to uh, comment and say, well, don't believe everything you're reading here, uh, which, again, to your point, it, it should be up to the reader, not up necessarily to the company like Twitter. Thank you for that clarification, and I'll note this. It gets to the heart that this is a sticky wicket, a complicated issue that is tough to follow, but you're exactly right. I mean, the uh, the, the long and short of it is that um, these entities are the reason for this protection from, as you say, liability. The reason that 
somebody can't sue somebody else because of a nasty comment on Facebook, um, and thereby uh, 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 bring you know Facebook into all sorts of legal liability, or the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world expose them to all sorts of legal liability. Is this Section 230? And, and this shield is based upon, yes, this pretty simple dichotomy whereby they're not publishers. They're not supposed to act like publishers, and that's why they enjoy this legal protection. Uh-huh. By acting like a publisher and doing so so brazenly, I mean, it's just, why would you do it? Why would, uh, it, it's beyond the pale, um, in my humble opinion, that, that it seems like a needless provocation. Provocation. Well, uh, nevertheless, yeah. Please. But the provocation, I think, and in, in, uh, the backdrop on this, of course, is that the companies are run by extremely progressive or liberal folks, and they have a they have a, a dog in the race, so to speak, in terms of the presidential election and other elections. Uh, there is a high uh, dis, uh, disdain for President Trump and his agenda, and they would like to support. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear they'd like to support the other side. <laughs> well, I'll say this. I am unwilling to ascribe motives. Uh, uh, whatever their reasoning, I will say this. It's silly. There's no re- They didn't have to do it. It, mm-hmm. it, it is an, an, an action that does mimic the sort of things that publishers do, and it thereby invites this sort of scrutiny, and invites this sort of scrutiny from the most powerful man in America. I mean, <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I... I, I don't understand why they did it. Yeah. Why? Whatever their their rationale, be it politically minded or be it just a, a just a stupid, silly thing to do. Yesterday was the reaction to their action, and it came in the form of uh, of an executive order from Trump that ordered a number of agencies to to look at ways to chip away at this Section Two Thirty Shield of legal protection for these companies. I'll say this about the executive order. It is much more uh, uh, bite than bark. It, it, it involves these agencies that are known as, quote-unquote, independent agencies. And whenever your listeners hear that term, all that is meant is that the people who run these agencies, in this instance, the Federal Communications Commission and also the Federal Trade Commission, that they cannot be fired by President Trump simply because they disagree with him on policy matters. Mm-hmm. That is to say that that yesterday's executive order entailed a a request. It was not compulsory. It is not necessary. You know, if these agencies disagree with the president, and in the past, uh, these agencies have uh, maintained uh, positions on Section 230 that are are counter to uh, perhaps what Trump has in mind, um, there's no guarantee that they're going to follow through. So there's uh, a lot more sound and fury, uh, perhaps, than... A substance when it comes to the executive order. Um, it's a bonfire of the vanities, if you will. But, you know, because, again, on the one hand, uh, what is Twitter thinking? Well, why would they... Well, this legal protection is absolutely fundamental to their existence. Yeah. Um, why would they do this? And, you know, on the other hand, Trump's response um, much ballyhooed, but doesn't really entail much in the way of action, again, because these agencies are quote-unquote independent, which means they don't have to do it. Yeah, well, it's so interesting, that little backdrop here. Uh, number one, I think the FCC has been staffed, uh, I think there are a couple of appointments, at least one, uh, I think maybe several appointments, I think there's three or four commissioners on the FCC, but uh, they've been appointed by Trump, so they, I think they are supportive of his agenda, some of these guys, anyhow. Uh, the other point I'd make is apparently he tweeted about uh, uh, mail-in ballots for the presidential election coming up. He's against that, of course. He's been very vocal about that. And uh, he tweeted about it. Uh, the Twitter uh, then uh, had this fact check, and apparently the fact check was incorrect. <laughs> you know? In other words, Trump was correct. He was actually right about what he was tweeting. I'll, so I'll say uh, two things. Um, first on the last one. Yes, and now that you uh, provoke my memory, uh, it was a CNN article that, that uh, Twitter ultimately fact-checked the president with. And whatever you think about Trump, I, I, I don't think that's appropriate to, to use you know, CNN, especially as CNN has been over the last three and a half years, right. um, as effective of the president. Regarding your, your first point, you're exactly right. Um, so, legally speaking, these independent agencies have the ability to buck the president's request. Mm-hmm. However, the president has other mechanisms of persuasion. First and foremost among them 
is that he gets to choose a majority of commissioners on the FCC and on the FTC that are, you know, his guys, that, that are people he chose in line yeah. with his principles, and he has other mechanisms of persuasion, you yes, know, a uh, ride on Air Force One or a phone call. Yeah, and, but uh, again, they, they really have poked a hornet's nest, number one. But number two, this is a real policy issue. I mean, what they, they have the, the privilege of not being held accountable for what's being published, and yet they want to go ahead and uh, make comments like this. I think they either, either correct their behavior, or I think it's up to Congress, Congress to address the issue, and as I understand it, it is a bipartisan issue. There's both uh, folks on both sides that don't like the behavior of these uh, outlets and these platforms. So the libertarian in me has to speak up here. The constitutional lawyer in me says, you're exactly right when it comes to Congress should be making these hard decisions. Uh, I'm much more amenable to uh, open speech. I mean, I think it's it's really silly, as I've, I believe I've articulated repeatedly in this interview, what Twitter did. I mean, it's a needless provocation. They're poking a hornet's nest. Nevertheless, I, I believe that government regulation of speech or attempts to facilitate a uh, uh, kind of endless litigation, or the, the, be it via direct government involvement or be it via through the courts, um, I, I think that people are smart enough to, to make up their own minds right. when it comes to what to believe, and, and I don't think the government nor the courts, or neither the executive branch nor the judiciary should have an undue or it should be suppressing speech. Well, but the, the other part of this, of course, is not. it's just not uh, uh, fact-checking the president. I mean, they've blocked Candace Owens, who's an uh, outspoken black conservative woman. Uh, they've uh, blocked other publishers who've uh, basically not done anything wrong. They've just voiced, uh, voiced their own conservative point of view. So they have a huge impact. They may have or could have a huge impact on the narrative going on around these elections. And I'm, I think this is, uh, I'm just very pleased with what's happening here. I got it. Well, I'll say this. The, the, one of the reasons Candace Owens is so prominently known is because she was blocked by Twitter. Okay. This is still America. We still have, um, there's myriad outlets out there, such as excellent show, where all sorts of viewpoints can get out there. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think just because the Twitters or the Facebooks of the world take you off their platform doesn't mean you can't get known and, and uh, well heard in this country. That's a great point. Again, uh, William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. I encourage our listeners to visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your very well-informed and interesting commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show. On the Bob Harden uh, uh let me find my cursor here. If I can, <laughs> here it is. Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC 
agency goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. Uh, one of the major programs is creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And, of course, there's been a little interruption of this because of the pandemic. But nevertheless, extremely effective program working with uh, uh, elected officials throughout the country. And uh, the, the website is thefga.org, thefga.org. Well, I don't like waste, but free market conservative and libertarians well understand the perils of excessive red tape and the unchecked regulatory state in the abstract, but a new report makes it clear the true cost of overregulation for real people. The figures are quite striking. The report is 10,000 Commandments 2020, an annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state. It's published this week by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a free market think tank and a great organization. I think it's CEI.org, I believe, is the website. Nevertheless, the study's author, Clyde Wayne Cruz, poured over publicly available private and government data to evaluate and estimate the size, scope, and cost of our current regime of federal regulations. He concludes that the aggregate cost of federal regulation is, at a minimum, $1.9 trillion. Let me repeat that, $1.9 trillion. To put this number in context, a country with a $1.9 trillion uh, GDP would have the ninth largest economy in the world. Moreover, our sweeping costly regulations aren't simply being borne by big business. They're passed on, of course, to consumers via high prices and to workers through reduced wages. Thus, CEI, Competitive Enterprise Institute, estimates that the federal regulations cost each U.S. household, get this, $14,000 annually in hidden taxes. Let me repeat, repeat that. Regulations cost each family, on average, $14,000 annually in hidden taxes. This exceeds what people pay in corporate and income taxes combined. The craziest part, this is just for federal regulations. If you also added up the cost of owners, state and municipal regulations imposed on the public as well, the figures would be considerably higher. There's some good news, though. By a number of uh, measures, the study finds that the Trump administration has made substantial progress through, towards deregulation to the economy's benefit. The number of new final rules is way down under Trump. 9,611 total over three years have been slashed. The report reads the number of pages in the Federal Register, once a sort of a measure in regulation, are fewer under President Trump compared to his predecessor. Uh, President Trump is on a strong footing with his deregulatory record, but there's much more that can be done, and his efforts could be undermined if he ends up adding new regulations elsewhere. The CEI report offers specific recommendations for what deregulatory paths should be pursued next. Uh, executive orders to permanently repeal uh, recently waived regulations that were harming the coronavirus response, sunset dates for regulations, annual regulatory report cards with standardized searchable information on existing and upcoming rules and so forth. There's just a lot of things that can be done. Now, Trump uh, did say he's uh, asked each agency to review rules that are temporary to see if we can make some of them permanent. So I think he's, got, he's continuing his assault on overregulation. But right now, 2019, can you believe this? $14,000 a family, that's what it costs in terms of federal regulations only, not including state and uh, local regulations as well. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Buzz Victor. Buzz is heading up, he's a community activist, heading up an important cause against overbuilding in Naples. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
For the best in food and drink as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I do a little shout out to St. Matthew's House. They've opened their businesses now. 70% of their revenue comes from the businesses they run, their thrift shops and their car wash and uh, catering services and the other things that they do. And they, of course, it's for a great organization. Uh, they just don't house the homeless. They provide meals. They have accountability in all of their programs. For example, the programs they have for drug addiction. So, uh, for example, they get people off of drugs. They do a great job. And not one, one penny comes from the government. One of the big supporters, by the way, of St. Matthew's House. St. Matthew's House is stmatthewshouse.org. stmatthewshouse.org. One of the big supporters is Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. It's one of my favorite places for breakfast and lunch. And uh, they're now open for business after this coronavirus, and they're doing a great job. I really enjoy them, and big supporters of St. Matthew's House, uh, Lulabee's Diner at the uh, uh, at Green Tree Shopping Center. Great place to have uh, breakfast or lunch. I'll bet you this is my next guest. Let's see. I'm going to put him on air. Hello, Buzz. Hey, Bob. Hey, uh, yes. Hi, I'm sorry. My phone was didn't ring this morning. Well, you're on air right now, Buzz. So oh, good. <laughs> not a problem. We'll continue the conversation right now. Buzz, I just want to uh, mention, successful business guy. He's uh, right now at his home in Colorado. But he's very active in uh, what's happening in uh, Naples, in North Naples. There's a plan by stock development to build high-rises at the corner of Vanderbilt Beach Road right there. And uh, I think it's 118, if I'm not mistaken. But nevertheless, a place where a lot of traffic. So, Buzz, uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us, first of all. Uh, no worries. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, indeed. So, uh, tell us about your concerns, what's going on, and why this is a, should be a concern for us. Well, let me tell you, first of all, that I've been a real estate developer for some 40 years, and I typically would not uh, go up against another developer. Uh, secondly, let me tell you that I think that stock is, by and large, a very good developer and a good guy. I think that what has happened in this situation um, is that he has purchased a piece of property for a very substantial amount of money, something north of $19 million. Mm. And what he is wanting to build is simply an overreach for the neighborhood. Um, the, uh, his initial uh, development plan started two years ago. He was looking for a single 21-story tower. Uh, by comparison, the tallest building uh, north of Vanderbilt Beach Road up to Immokalee uh, is only 14 or 15 stories, so he was really, really outrageous at that point. He scaled it back some to two 16-story towers, which are still four stories taller than any building in the in the neighborhood for all practical purposes, with perhaps the exception of the uh, uh, La Playa Hotel. Mm-hmm. So um, more than that, he's his setbacks have been 
virtually almost non-existent. So this creates a very large canyon effect uh, along both uh, Vanderbilt Beach Road and Gulf Shore. Um, and that's to say nothing of the additional traffic that they now 172 units of residential that he's looking to put in, or possibly a hotel as part of his zoning, uh, would bring to the neighborhood. Um, for the Pelican Bay community, uh, additional traffic on Vanderbilt Beach Road simply becomes a, a uh, an opportunity to escape the traffic through the Pelican Bay neighborhood yeah. off of uh, either Hammock Oak or, or uh, North Point down to uh, uh, Pelican Bay Boulevard. So yeah. it becomes a traffic issue not only for the beach and the immediate neighborhood, but for the Pelican Bay community as well. So uh, is your concern then the size of the development and the setbacks, or what would be a perfect outcome with, uh, you've got a lot of followers, you've got a, uh, I'm looking at the uh, website right now, uh, SaveVanderbiltBeach.com, I believe is the website, SaveVanderbiltBeach.com. What would be a perfect outcome? Well, there are, with within 500 feet of, of Stock's location are three buildings that are, in fact, 12 stories tall. Uh, the regatta has two of them, um, and there is one on Gulf Shore just, uh, just north of the entrance to Vanderbilt Beach. It would be hard for us to argue that the neighborhood, to be consistent with the neighborhood, that he had to be smaller than 12 stories, mm-hmm. um, although the actual requirements of his zoning, which is currently commercial, interestingly, um, he has the right to change commercial zoning to residential. If he does so, he can get 16 units per acre. He's got 5.42 acres. That would mean that he could build, under the current code, he could build roughly 87 residential units. And uh, coincidentally, uh, they could be 87. The buildings could be a maximum of 87 feet tall. Mm -hmm. Um, As he's currently configured, his buildings would be 208 feet tall, Mm -hmm. and the unit count would be 172. We think that if he would drop to 12 stories, which would be compatible with both the regatta to the east of him and Beachmore to the uh, west of him, uh, that that would have to be something with which we would which we would accept. So that's four stories less than he is currently showing on the two towers that he now wants to build. Uh, in addition, by the way, to three uh, buildings that would be about five stories. Yeah, uh, also on the site. Um, so that's one thing we would we would probably accept something in the twelve story range. So what is uh, what is the uh, co- what is the uh, code? Uh, no, who, whose decision? I would imagine is the Cuyahoga County Commissioners that get to make this decision, and I would imagine true. there's guidance, if not law, establishing the code and what's permissible. Uh, so maybe you could comment on that. Well, the process that Stockwell is going through, and it's a perfectly legal process is, number one, to change the comprehensive plan and the future land use plan maps of the, for the county. Um, and he changes that by creating a n- new district, a sub-district, which covers only his 5.42 acres. In other, in other uh, areas of the country, this would be called spot zoning but, uh, and would not be very approvable. But in, in Collier County, that's not the issue. Mm-hmm. So his first step, is to create a sub-district and to define in that sub-district what he's allowed to do. Once the commissioners vote on the sub-district and allowing the sub-district, then his second step is to change the zoning, and he changes it to what is called a planned unit development, or a PUD. Um, And in that planned unit development, he follows the rules that he has written into the sub-district. So if he wants to go for 208 feet of height, then in his sub-district change to the comprehensive plan, he'll allow a building that goes up to 208 feet. It's a, it's a, strange, uh, it's a strange way to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has to, within that context, he has to be consistent throughout. He's got to be consistent with what the intent of the comprehensive plan is, and theoretically he's got to be consistent in his zoning as well. Yeah. Um, the reality is that what he's asking for is not consistent in, in either case. But you're quite correct. The decision falls on the ha- in, the, in the hands of the county commissioners. So, um, so uh, Buzz, maybe a comment on this then. Uh, here we, in this pandemic, you would think that this is a, kind of a moot issue, considering that things have kind of grinded to a, to a complete stop here. Uh, when, are some of these, when are these decisions being made? 
Well, that's a really, really good question. If you look at today's Naples Daily News, you will see that there are four or five uh, notices of four or five uh, sites that are being considered by the Planning Commission at a meeting on the 16th of July. Mm. They also have them, sorry, of June. They also have a meeting, I think, on the 11th of June, hearing another group of, of, uh, of issues. These are public hearings. It's unclear to me, and, and I, I just don't know the answer, it's unclear to me how they can have public hearings where if, if, we, if we were hearing the Naples One, the stock development issue, there would be hundreds of people, hundreds of people who would show up at that meeting to contest or to talk about why stock shouldn't be given what he's asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you, have, in this day and age, as you point out, how can you, how can you do that? I mean, these are, these are not particularly large rooms at the, uh, at the county office building, and there's no way that anybody could socially distance in that kind of a circumstance. So I'm not sure how the Planning Commission, which is the first step, by the way, mm-hmm. how the Planning Commission uh, is, can hold these meetings. And we're trying to get some clarification on that literally as we speak. So, uh, uh, so Buzz, uh, uh, because of the time we have left, uh, how can we support your efforts? I think everything you're suggesting is reasonable, and we don't want overdevelopment in our area. We don't want to see uh, high-rise look, have this look like Miami Beach or something like that. What can we do to support your efforts? Well, I think the first thing to do is to check the website, www.savevanderbiltbeach.com. Mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of information on that website. Also, the opportunity to register on it. Registering, all you need to do is give us your email address. You don't even have to give us your name and address if you don't want to. Um, and that just puts you on the list so that we can continue to communicate with you and let you know what's going on, when meetings are taking place, and so on. Um, we also ask for donations. Uh, we, so far, we've got 940 people who have registered for the site. Uh, we've raised something more than $50,000 to pay lawyers, planners, traffic engineers, hmm. public relations people, all of the things that we need to do to fight a very well-established developer. Um, and uh, so those are, those are really the two things. And then the other, the other stuff is write your county commissioners, become knowledgeable, Write the commissioners, write the planning staff, write the write the members of the planning commission, and let them know how you feel. All right, Buzz, those, those are great. That's a great admonition. Again, the, the website is SaveVanderbiltBeach.com, SaveVanderbiltBeach.com. And again, your admonition to all of us is to be responsible citizens. Pay attention because bad stuff happens when you don't. So, Budge, I, I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasant 
pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And the website is gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Dave Bego. Dave is the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It's a story of the travails of dealing with union bosses from SEIU over the course of two and a half years. They wanted him to sign a neutrality agreement. It sounds fairly harmless, kind of uh, benign, but it's not. It basically, a neutrality agreement gives uh, union bosses the right to bypass secret ballot and go straight to employees, sign them up for the union, intimidate them to use whatever tactics they want. And uh, once they get to 50% plus one, voila, they're unionized. Well, Dave wouldn't do that. He said, if you want to unionize my shop, you're going to have to do it through secret ballot. Uh, and he prevailed after two and a half years, uh, and then he won. He, he wrote a book about it. It's a great read. It's called The Devil at Our Doorstep. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Bob. My thank pleasure, well. Dave. So I, mean, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, I said, I hope you're doing well. Oh, doing great. Thanks, Dave. So uh, I didn't have a chance to talk to you before, uh, the, uh, before the break, but I wanted to find out if, there's, if the unions are trying to advance, and I'm talking about SEIU particularly, uh, what's happening now during this uh, coronavirus uh, downturn. Well, there's a lot of uh, activity going on out there. And, you know, the SEIU is one of the top five unions in the country that are uh, trying to... Um, um, get people unionized in that and uh they're going out there behind the scenes they're um you know really pressuring companies and, and employees and that to do it and we're going to see this going on and they're also i think behind you know this big political scam that we've got going on coming into the 2020 election and um you know e- even even the unions when they go out and have people vote um uh there's scams going on with the uh how the the election ballots are marked, and um, the NLRB has really stepped up and slapped the unions on this because they'd have people that would have to sit down and mark it, answer certain questions about whether they wanted to be unionized or not, and the boxes were yes or no. And in a lot of cases, the um, um, boxes were yes and no. And um, this was because the unions... Uh, what they did is they collected these people's ballots instead of letting it be done secretly. And when people said no, they marked yes and uh, kind of smudged out the no part of it. And um, huh. this, the reason I bring this up, Bob, because this is, you know, the real problem with the mail-in ballots across the country that things could be done doing this stuff too. And uh, because I don't know if you remember several years ago when I was writing blogs, I wrote uh, the gal from California that uh, I mentioned in my book, she said that uh, people were um, um, actually, and I actually heard this in, in Arizona too, that uh, the SEIU was having people uh, do things like that, put their uh, ballots together, and then the SEIU would go through and change them and smear them and everything like that, and then submit huh. them so that they could get the election results they wanted. And this is the same thing that could happen across the country with uh, voters that the unions go after and the Democratic Party goes after. So before you send your mail-in ballots, let us, you know, let us go through and look at them, and they'll change things they want to. And this is why we got to stay put with our secret ballot elections that we've always done as a country, uh, both for the politics and for the unions. Uh, well said. Boy, that just never even occurred to me. Uh, one thing that did pop in my mind is the thing we were talking about the uh, violence earlier in Minneapolis and what's going on. It makes me wonder, perhaps, there's a union activity behind some of this stuff. Well, I'm sure there is. And I don't know if you noticed as you've watched some of this stuff, uh, there's a lot of out, uh, uh, them out there with shirts on that said Black Lives Matter. Well, Black Lives Matter was uh, uh, born by the unions. And. Uh, Hmm. So I, I, I really think that uh, they're behind all this. And, again, this is just uh, things leading up to the election to make Trump look bad and um, and get him out of office and for the Democrats to take control of the White House and the Senate. 
And I, we're, it's going to get worse, Bob, as we move towards November. Uh, you know, and I want to say it sounds like the conspiracy theory and stuff. I mean, you have to read the book to understand the, the dirty tricks that the uh, union bosses played on Dave. They intimidated his customers. They intimidated through the newspaper. They made false charges of the National Labor Relations Board. And then, of course, it was uh, denied by the National Labor Relations Board as being facetious and foolish. And yet it gets very small print in the, in the newspaper. Point being. Uh, they, they intimidate families. Now, I'm not talking about all unions. Uh, this particularly is SEIU. There are some unions that uh, don't play dirty tricks. They do a good job of representing their union members, uh, especially trade unions. But uh, th this particular union, and I'm sure there are others, are typical of what you see with the Democrat Party and the dirty tricks that they can play. So this is why this is such an important issue. It really is. And, um, you know, people need to wake up to what's going on out there. And, you know, in the last uh, year, well, I actually just in May and then um, in the last year, the 10 most active unions have been the, the uh, Teamsters, the Machinists, um, the um, electrical workers of the SEIU. Uh, they're, they're the top ones, mm -hmm. and they're the ones out there doing these type of things and getting behind people. And of course, they're being supported by the far-left people like Soros and, and some of those groups, too, because I don't know if you remember, too, in my blogs I wrote that um, uh, Soros's group, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, yeah. uh, but, but they shared offices across the country with the SEIU. <laughs> I did not know that. That's unbelievable. So, yeah, uh, and people need to understand this is what's going on. It's just like the Democrats right now, uh, you know, um, you know, the uh, they wanted legislation that uh, allowed the Democrats that aren't going into work uh, to do proxy voting, so that uh, if, uh, if somebody isn't in there, um, uh, another member can just uh, vote for them. Yeah, and you know how that could go. Oh, absolutely. The ones that are going to go, the ones that are going to get in to to get those votes are going to be the ones that are trying to push the. Uh, radical agenda. So this is, you know, what I see, uh, clearly what happened to this Floyd George uh, with a knee on his neck, and he died uh, six to eight minutes of a police officer, uh, undue force being applied. It was uh, unconscionable, and there should be legal action and retribution. They've lost their jobs, but that's not enough. There should be legal, legal action about this. So there are people out there who are uh, protesting uh, in a, in a uh, lawful way, but then you see all this violence, and it just makes me wonder. There has to be uh, professional agitators behind this, creating this, and it's not just in Minneapolis. It's across the country. Well, that's right, and you look at it, it's mostly in the um, 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 Democratic-controlled areas in that states and uh, uh, more liberal states, and I really think that, uh, again, it comes back to the unions, and they're behind all this kind of stuff. It's it's really sad what's going on, and yeah. uh I think uh, the American people need to wake up. And, uh, you know, it's like the coronavirus. I don't know if you saw the figures. I got them from a friend of mine here the other day. But, uh, you know, we've had about 100,000 deaths in the United States now uh, from the coronavirus. And 70,000 have come from Democratic states and 30,000 from Republican states. Right. Kind of tells you how they're uh, handling the whole situation. And, uh, and it's sad. And that's being used, too, against Trump and uh I think this uh, whole coronavirus thing is a, a legislative uh, uh, process by these people trying to uh, bring down the president. No, I agree with that. Again, the devil at our doorstep dot com is the website. It's a great read. You can get a copy of the book on my website uh, at a nice discount. And of course, at all book purveyors across the country, you'll find the devil at our doorstep dot com by Dave Bigo. Dave, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and uh, I appreciate it. And. Uh Hope you have a great weekend down there. You as well. Thank you so much, Dave. He's up in Indianapolis. 6,000 employees across uh, over uh, 40 states in the United States. Executive Management Services is the name of the company that he founded, and he's now, of course, the uh, CEO. That's a wrap here on today's show. We've got great guests on Monday, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, Jim McTagg. Jim is the author of uh, Shake the Money Tree. We'll visit with Jim as well. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Namaste.
much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.